This morning we are looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. If you're just joining us today, um, we are walking through this fantastic book, the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. Um, If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, you'll find that on page 1,242. 1,242. Hear now the word of the Lord. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has been now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Let's pray. O Lord, we need You. Help us then, Lord, in these next few moments as we look at Your Word. Send forth Your Spirit that we might understand and be grown spiritually. Give anointing to the hearer and preacher alike. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Do you remember that great, fantastic, Emmy award-winning television show, The A-Team? Do you know this show? Like the pinnacle of good entertainment? Mark actually offered to play the theme song this morning on his cello, but we didn't find that to be reverent enough for the service. Described as heroes for hire, they traveled around the nation helping protect innocent people from a really broad selection of bad guys with terrible aim. They had their M14 machine guns with bullets that must not have been loaded properly because they never actually killed anybody in all of the seasons in which this fantastic show ran. It was a terribly predictable show. It was good entertainment, but it was terribly predictable. It went like this. Some group was in trouble. This ragtag group of heroes for hire on run from the law showed up out of nowhere and came up with this crazy plan that didn't make any sense in the making of it. And the show ended with a five-minute five pyrotechnic show with a lot of bullets being thrown around and welded things together with duct tape, somehow defeating the bad guys. But the show always ended with Hannibal Smith. Do you remember his line? Holding his cigar and saying, I love it when a plan comes together. According to verse 11 of our text, God had a plan. 
an eternal purpose that has now been realized in Christ Jesus. And here, particularly, he is talking about how his plan pertains to the relationship and standing of those who are not ethnic Jews, that is, Gentiles, within the church. What was God's plan for that? You know, in the the A-Team show, Hannibal would come up with this crazy idea, and you think, this would never work. Like, he's sending folks to do things, and you're thinking, how is this all going to fit together? And you don't know until finally the last five minutes of the show, the thing that you've been waiting the whole show for. We have elements in the Old Testament of this plan of redemption for the Gentiles. We have hints, and it's about as clear as mud, like something's going to happen, but we're not entirely sure what it's going to look like. And then all of a sudden, the plan comes together. It is realized in Christ Jesus. And everything changes, and the relationship between Jew and Gentile is changed, not just for the now, but for all of eternity, as the Gentiles are fully included into the church of Christ. Part of this plan included a Pharisee. You know him by two names. His Jewish name was Saul or his Greek name Paul. Who hated the Gentiles. Hated them with every fiber of his being like a good Jew would in those days. He persecuted those who believed the gospel and thought that he was perfect. He didn't need saving. But God would transform him so that he might use Paul to bring healing and transformation to the Gentiles, to the nations. If we look at uh, the Old Testament, we see this this grand plan in hints. The Old Testament is known as the Testament of Shadow. And the New Testament is the the Testament of Revealing, of Enlightenment, of what has happened, of the reality. So you have these hints of what is to come. All the way back in Genesis 12-3 when God calls Abram out of the foreign lands, right? The Ur of Chaldees. And he says, look, I'm not only going to bless you. But I will curse those who curse you, and in all the families of the earth, shall, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's this trajectory that God is going to bless Abraham and his family, and all those who will come after him, namely the people of Israel. But the blessing for Israel is meant to be for, for all the earth, for all the nations, all the Gentiles, all the peoples of the earth. You know, when, uh, when your three year old child asks you, How does an airplane work? what do you say? You say, well, it has an engine and some wings, and there you go. That's all you need to know, and it works. When you have a six-year-old to ask you, how does a plane work? Well, you might get into what thrust and drag and weight and, uh, and lift. You might get a little more into detail. That's a pretty good answer. When you're 16, you might get into the complexities of aerodynamics and air pressure and go talk to Mr. Wally Shad, who knows about these things. This is called progressive revelation. You learn more as you get older in in a lot of areas. And this is how God works in his Bible. He tells us more and more as we go in the Bible about his grand plan of redemption for each and every one of us, and especially in our context, the Gentiles. So when you get a little bit later, you get to Isaiah, and it's becoming clearer. You see in Isaiah 49, verse 6, speaking of the Messiah, who is Christ, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So God would send forth the Messiah to be a light for the nations. And so when we read in John chapter 1, in him was life, and the light, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, guess what? He's the light, foretold all the way back in Isaiah chapter 49. You have this, this incremental revelation 
of this grand plan that's going to come together in Christ Jesus. Things begin to change with Christ's ministry. Don't you remember when he's speaking to the uh, woman at the well in Samaria? They start talking about where you're supposed to worship. And he says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And when we tie this to passages like Mark 13 2, which talks about, hey, all the stones of the temple, these are going to be torn down. So the Old Testament believers, our Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ, they would have thought that as the Gentiles were brought in, it would certainly include a a central place of worship, the temple. They would come and worship God at the temple and be part of the theocratic nation-state of Israel. But then Jesus says the temple's going away. And then He says you don't have to worship Him on Mount Zion. You have to worship Him in spirit and truth. There's something, something new going on. And it's still... It's still kind of clear as mud, right? And then you have Pentecost, the the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And first it's just the Jewish believers. But then as they go into other lands back home after Pentecost, the the gospel begins to grow. Then you get to Acts chapter 10 with Peter. You remember Peter? He, He has a vision of Christ lowering down the sheet three times. It's interesting, Peter will later say in that chapter, it's not just talking about food. He says, I've been shown that I can't call any animals or people unclean. This is before the Roman centurion and his family and friends who believe on Christ and suddenly receive the Holy Spirit. But, but wasn't the Holy Spirit just for the Jew? What What's going on here? In fact, we read in... Acts chapter 10, 45, and the believers among the circumcised, that's the ethnic Jewish believers, who had come with people were amazed because the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Something's new going on. There's this full inclusion of those who have been far off, the full inclusion into one church, into one body, both Jew and Gentile alike. And all are equal before the foot of the cross. So God had a plan for the Gentiles. And so we have bits and pieces here. But God's plan for the Gentiles included especially raising up one servant in particular who would be what we would say the greatest missionary apart from the Lord Jesus Christ who's ever lived. And that's Paul, of course. But if you had known Paul, it's kind of like me in college. I don't think you would have liked me. I wasn't a nice guy. If you had known Paul before he was a Christian, you wouldn't have liked him either. He needed to be transformed. He wasn't ready to be used by God. He needed salvation. But not only that, his heart needed changing in order to be used. And so we see three transformations that are borne out in this text. And the first is that he goes from hating the Gentiles to being willing to being imprisoned for them. As a zealous Jew, as a Pharisee especially, he would have hated the Gentiles. The uh, uh, most rabbis in those days woke up and they prayed three things. And I suddenly can't remember the third. The first was, thank God I'm not a woman. Thank God I'm not a Gentile. What was the third? Do you remember, Mark? I, was trying to remember myself. I don't remember either. Uh, and so, but it was, they thought, the, thank the Lord every day. They weren't a Gentile. They hated the Gentiles. Um, 
But then all of a sudden something changes. We see in verse 1 that he describes himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not very willing to go to prison for my enemies. That's a rare thing, right? He's a prisoner of Christ, but on behalf of the Gentiles. Something's changed. We read in Acts 9 that he had been given a specific vocation, a specific call, that he would be God's chosen instrument to carry God's name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. Isn't it just like God to choose the the least likely person to go and take his message to people whom he hated? Not God hated, that Paul hated. Something has changed between Jew and Gentile. This this plan was finally coming together. This eternal plan before the ages. We see this plan being revealed in verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus of the gospel. This mystery here is not like an Agatha Christie novel. It's not a, a mysterious mystery gazing through fog. Biblically, a mystery is something that was once hidden and is now is revealed. It has been revealed through Christ, through the apostles and the prophets, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that now, fundamentally, there is a shift and that Jew and Gentile alike are co-heirs with Christ. They have one salvation. It's not like you're, the Jews are over here and they're going to uh, um, inherit the same thing of salvation. And the Gentiles are over here and they're going to inherit the same thing of salvation. It's that they're together And they're one, and they will together inherit the promises of Christ, are one in the same body, and will together inherit the promises of salvation. It didn't matter. Whatever background there were, Jews and Gentiles, white and black, American, Russian, whatever it is, no matter where we come from, the differences of our cultures and languages, we are co-heirs together with Christ and our brothers and sisters all, all over this world. We are co-members together of the one body of Christ, whether you're a Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, whatever, and those who are across the seas in Africa, China, Asia, wherever it is. We are together the one people of Christ. There's one gospel, not one for the Jew and one for the Gentile. You know, there are some things that only God can do, aren't there? Now, anything we do is under his power and leading, all those things. But, but I'm talking about like, there's some things that are, that are so difficult that we immediately say, Lord, this is not going to change unless you change it. As you think about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles, that's something that God had to get involved with in a very intimate manner. And he did by Jesus Christ. But as we think about that in our own relationships, sometimes, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but sometimes we can be in relationships that we look at and say, there's there's not going to be any healing here unless the Lord gets involved. As one person has been sinned against, or there's a bitterness brewing from something done long ago, are there any relationships in your life that you need God to help bring healing to? It's amazing the the small things that will divide, especially families, 
And then long term, it's like a, if you have a small pebble in your, sh- in your shoe and you walk for a little while and you keep walking on it and walking on it, it's caused by something very small, but then it transforms how you walk, throws your hip out. The same thing happens in relationships. Let me tell you, if Jesus is able to reconcile Jew and Gentile together in Christ Jesus, especially as we think about our brothers and sisters in Christ, no relationship is beyond His working and His healing. Christ has forgiven us, therefore we are to forgive. Christ has served us, therefore we are to serve one another. Christ has forgiven our sins, therefore we are to forgive those who have sinned against us, especially old ones in the past. Christ has brought reconciliation between us and God, and we are to seek reconciliation one with the other. Christ can transform relationships, even in the hardest situations. He did this for Paul. He hated the Gentiles. Now he's in prison on their behalf. There's another transformation here, and that's from going from Paul being a persecutor of the gospel to being a servant of the gospel. Do you know Paul's history? You know, Paul was a great persecutor. He was there at the stoning of the first martyr of Stephen. And then immediately after that in Acts chapter 8, we, we see this, this great explosion of persecution against the church. And at the very head is this Pharisee named Saul. And this is the one whom God would transform to take the gospel to the Gentiles. We read this in verse 7 of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. This word minister is the same word that's used of deacon, diakonos, and it means to be a willing servant. It's not a slave. It's a, a willing and voluntary servant who puts the, um, the efforts and the good and the interests of the person he serves above his own interests. Paul didn't just hate the, the Gentiles. He hated the gospel that offered forgiveness to all those who would call upon his name before he was a believer. And then God would transform his heart, granting him salvation. And now he has given him a stewardship of God's grace for the Gentiles. The steward is one in a household who is over something. He answers to the master. And God has given him a special steward, a stewardship of the gospel to take to the Gentiles. He has specifically tasked him with a sacred trust and vocation to take the good news of Jesus to those who used to be far off from the people of God. What is he proclaiming? Verse 8 says, the unsearchable riches of Christ. This word unsearchable is really hard to translate. It means unfathomable, unmeasurable, untraceable. How long would it take you to measure the amount of water in the ocean with an eyedropper? Right, that's a ridiculous statement. And so it is a ridiculous statement that we could ever measure or plumb the depths of God's love and His riches and kindness and His grace towards us. This was through the belief in the gospel. Do you know what the gospel is? It is that Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That I deserve hell, personally. But that Christ has taken that hell for me on the cross. That if I believe in Him, He will forgive me of all of my sin. And I will be given eternal life, both now and forever. 
When we become Christians, we are one in Christ with each other. There are no uh, class A Christians and class B Christians. As one commentator said, there are no slaves in the household of God, only sons. I like that quote. Only sons in the household of God. Well, the third thing that had to change was that Paul had a really high view of himself. You ever met folks like that? Uh, Perhaps I just need to look in the mirror and I'll see one. You know, someone who has too high a view of themselves, it brings division. Paul used to think, hey, look at me, I'm awesome, I'm fantastic. In fact, he tells us in Philippians chapter 3 that he used to see himself as under the law blameless. That's quite a phrase, right? I've never really transgressed the law of God. And when someone has such a high view of themselves, it means that they will, we will, I will have a very low view of other people. It's the only way this thing works. I am only good if I am better than you. That was Paul's life. He he thought before he was converted on the road to Damascus that the way to heaven was to be a good person. That won't save you, my friends. Being a good person will not save you. Hoping that your good deeds will outweigh your bads when you get to heaven, that's a terrible way to trust in your salvation because you will find that bankrupt. The good news is so much better than that. It is that Christ Jesus has taken the test for us and He has passed. Christ has done all the stuff that we're supposed to do. He has fulfilled all righteousness. He has obeyed or we have disobeyed. And He offers us forgiveness for all the things that we've done and He will even get credit to our account all the good things He has done when we have done none of them. Paul thought he was a good guy. Too good of a guy. He needed to be transformed. And so he says in verse 8 that he is the very least of all the saints. He makes up a word here. This phrase, least of all. He takes the word least. You know what least means? It means the bottom of the list. There's nothing else left, right? He takes the word least and he basically adds an ER or an EST to it. He says, I'm the least-er or the least-est. He said, whoever's the least, I'm least-er. Some good grammar. Least-er than they are. Of all the saints, not apostles, not prophets, of all the saints, all the Christians. He would say something similar in 1 Timothy 1.15, that Christ came into the world to save sinners. I love how the NIV puts this. Of whom I am the worst. That's a good phrase. And coming to that realization, that's, that's the point of salvation. Realizing that we have no hope besides Jesus Christ. Because of this, we find in verse 12 that he and I and you, if you're in Christ Jesus, have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him, in Christ. Paul can say in the same breath, I am the leastest of the leastest of the leaster of the saints. And yet I have bold access before the God who created everything. How can that be true? My friends, it's because of the table. It's because of what the table points us to. The death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior, that His blood was poured out for you and me, that we might have our sins forgiven, just like the water of baptism points us to the cleansing of our sins of the blood of Christ. So that, verse 10, so that the church, you and me, believers in Christ, so that the church, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What's this talking about? 1 Corinthians says that 
the cross is foolishness. This is the foolishness of the cross, what the world sees as foolishness. You would believe in a dead Savior? They killed that guy. Don't you know that? But we know that he's not dead, is he? He was raised on the third day, proclaiming to all of creation that death could not hold our Savior, could not hold God himself, and therefore could not hold all those who believe in Christ, so that we might be raised together with Christ, and that through that resurrection, through this proclamation of our oneness in Christ Jesus, we might proclaim to the rulers and authorities, these are the bad guys, right? These are the, the, the demons and Satan, the glory of Christ. Look what He has done for a poor wretch sinner like you and me. We'll do this now. And we'll do this forever in heaven. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for the transformation that is available through the gospel. Father, for those here who have not been transformed by the good news of Jesus, may You, by Your Holy Spirit, work in them even now, calling them to salvation. Father, for those of us who know you, we thank you and give you praise and proclaim to the whole world watching that it's all you, Jesus. It's all you. You're the only one that's done it. And it is only to you that we cry out, holy, holy, holy. Father, thank you for our salvation. In the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen.